Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Another busy news day. Glad you're with us. Good, bad, and crazy martinis. And Jim, we already had this as the good martini. And just before we uh, started recording here, uh, the martini got even better. Uh, This is all stemming from last night's Second and final Virginia governor's debate between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin. And the issue came up about uh, parental involvement in what goes on at school. Obviously, if you've been following the debates in Virginia or elsewhere around the country, big school board fights about masks and vaccines and critical race theory and uh, pronouns. It's been a big issue here in the northern Virginia suburbs. And Glenn Youngkin would be very smart to tap into that. And Terry McAuliffe opened the door wide, wide, wide last night. Uh, So this was the exchange during the debate last night, which ends with Terry McAuliffe telling you how much he thinks you as a parent should have input into what goes on in your local schools. Veto books, Glenn, not to be knowledge about it, also take them off the shelves. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decision. You vetoed it. So... Yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And Jim, the Yunkin campaign is certainly not missing this opportunity. They've already turned out a 30-second spot. Given some of the comments from parents at school board meetings here, there's a few words you might not want your little kids to hear. So just be careful on that. But this is a very powerful 30-second spot from Glenn Yunkin. We watched parents so upset because there was such sexually explicit material in the library. I decided to check the titles at my child's school. Both of these books include pedophilia, graphically describes engaging in fellatio with male minors. You vetoed the bill that would have informed parents that they were there. Yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I'm Glenn Young, candidate for governor, and I sponsored this ad. And those clips of the parents talking about that graphic literature, uh, that was from the last week in Fairfax County uh, here in in Northern Virginia. So, uh, Jim, it's going to be hard for Glenn Youngkin to win. The polls show that he certainly has a shot. We just talked about one last week among likely voters that even has him ahead. Uh, He's got to get people fed up with Terry McAuliffe. He's got to get people in in Northern Virginia, at least in better numbers than than in recent cycles, uh, to get on his side. And I can't think of a better issue for him to do it. You know, Greg, to quote one of Terry McAuliffe's good close friends, you're going to want to put some ice on that because this ad is just brutal and it uses his own words against him. I think the quotes from the parents are very powerful. Uh, For those wondering, it is accurately described. Uh, You you hear like, oh, parents are complaining about a book in the library. Ah, what is this? Catcher in the Rye again? What's going on? And then you oh my, no, like if you, this, this, it is exactly as they describe. It's, it's the, I have no idea what nut job school librarian looked at it and thought that was great, or maybe they bought it based on the title and didn't really think it, whatever it is, it just does not belong in a school library. And if you want to buy it for your kid, fine, that's your decision, but that is just not, it was just flat out, it's it's adult material, just doesn't belong in a school library. Um, but then McAuliffe, to, to just put it so bluntly, you know, I don't think parents should be telling the schools what they should teach. What, what does he think parents' role is to do? Just you know, turn your children over to the state and let us decide. You can't be trusted with the education of your own children. Um, it really is, is just inadvertently, I, I think, you know, it's a, this old definition of a Kinsey gap for Michael Kinsey, the, the journalist who ran, went off to Ren's slate many years ago. 
when a politician gets in trouble by accidentally telling the truth. I think that is genuinely what Terry McAuliffe feels like, that, you know, look, there are people with education degrees who know what's best for your kids. And if they think a book with pedophilia in it is good for them, then by golly, who are you to object? And of course, that's not what most parents feel like. And, you know, most people see education of their children as a partnership at minimum. Uh, in that, and then ultimately the parents have the final say. And for what it's worth, you know, with my kids in Fairfax County Public Schools myself, they're really good at sending all kinds of permission slips anytime they want to do sex education. Uh, they're doing a suicide talk at my son's high school uh, this week. And they're very good. You know, look, this is what we're going to teach. We hope it's okay. If you'd like to opt your student out, that's fine. And they're usually pretty good about this stuff. Um, it's because they recognize and respect that, you know, parents have a say in this and different parents will have different ideas of what's appropriate to teach their kids at different ages. Um, I haven't seen anything I really object to in the curriculum so far, but theoretically I could and say, you know what? No, I don't want my sons uh, getting taught that stuff. We'll, we'll teach that issue at home. And that's, that's the way it ought to be. And Terry McAuliffe just doesn't understand any of this. And he just kind of comes across as this arrogant jerk who I think, um, again, I think he's still the favorite, but this is the nice kind of galvanizing issue that could help youngkin in the uh, northern Virginia suburbs. Exactly. And early voting's already started in Virginia. I've seen some stories that uh, Republicans are actually doing better in early voting turnout, which is not usually the case here or in most places. And uh, if he can really get uh, folks focused on this issue, it's been a major headline grabber uh, in northern Virginia. Um, but, you know, the last few cycles, it's been very lopsided for the Democrats. So turnout's going to be a big part of it, uh, as well as uh, intensity on the issue. Uh, but, Jim, you know, a few years ago, we were kind of making fun of the gadflies on this issue. I remember the MSNBC promo with Melissa Harris-Perry, where she was saying, we can't uh, continue this notion that kids belong to their parents. They belong to the collective. And we're like, oh, man, these people are off the fringe. But now it's becoming more mainstream. You're hearing it from major party candidates, uh, you know, at, at the gubernatorial level, and we're hearing it in policy discussions as well. In fact, there's a lot of people on the right, and I, I don't think that they're entirely wrong, who think that this uh, plan for Biden to pay for your, you know, your uh, your daycare and then pay for preschool starting at age three and then pay for everything all the way through community college is the way for the government to raise your kids instead of you. Craig, when Harris Perry made that infamous statement, I'm trying to remember, was that when she had the tampon earrings on? <laughs> yeah, it's tough to tough to take someone seriously like that. But yeah, but let's also not forget that this entire conversation occurs in against the backdrop of the pandemic and keeping schools, at least here in Fairfax County, closed for an entire year, uh, with a lot of debates about whether it could have been done earlier or whether it could have been done more time, more days of the week. Now, credit words do they're back, kids are back five days a week starting this fall. Um, but, you know, there was a real frustration on the part of parents that like, well, OK, private schools are managing to do this and schools in other parts of the country had figured out how to do this. Why, you know, why are you sticking so many kids in this remote learning, which was not working for them? And I think we can all, you know, despite the insistence of the teachers unions and all these folks during this entire time, remote learning was it was an educational disaster for lots and lots of kids. Not every last kid. You know, if, you're, if your kid thrived in it, great. But by and large. Um, the poorest and most at, at risk and vulnerable kids were absolutely left behind by this. So there's already tension between teachers and school administrators on one side and parents on the other, because parents believe that teachers effectively opted out of doing their jobs for the better part of the year. 
Then they insisted they should go to the front of the line for vaccinations, which most people didn't have too much of a problem with. But then they had to have mandates to get them last. Like, wait, a minute, if you get to be first in line, everybody should be going to get vaccinated. You can't do any of this up, and I don't feel like it. You know, um, so there's just been this enormous frustration building towards, I would say, more specifically, teachers' unions than teachers. Uh, but in the context of this, this idea of, oh, no, no, educating your kids is a job for teachers to decide. You parents don't get any say in this. It's going to play terrible for Terry McAuliffe. And Greg, it couldn't happen to a better guy. <laughs> What's also fun is that uh, McAuliffe rejected one of uh, Yunkin's uh, proposed debates. And so that was the last one. They're not going to bring this up again face to face. You know, they've still got a, a month plus to lob McAuliffe ads at each doesn't other. doesn't have a chance to say, what I meant to say is that parents <laughs> are totally involved in this. Yeah, couldn't happen to a worse guy. All right, let's talk about uh, something uh, just as wonderful, and that's the fact that as we do this podcast here on Wednesday, Jim is once again very comfortably ensconced in his X chair. And uh, Jim, I assume it uh, still continues to delight. It does. I'm, I'm going to rock back and forth in it. Yeah, it doesn't squeak, so you, don't really, you can't really hear it, unfortunately. Here's the thing. Does it look good? Yes. Does it sound good because it's so quiet? Yes. What is it? Here's the thing. It feels good. Feels good on my butt. Feels good on my back. Feels good on my shoulders. I have no issues of, you know, uh, neck or, or shoulder tension or mouse arm or any of those things that, you know, you can have. And, you know, as I've mentioned, particularly during the pandemic, people were working from home. If you're used to working at a desk in a workplace and all of a sudden you try to work on the kitchen table um, or, or maybe at a, at a table in Starbucks or, or something like that, all of a sudden you begin to realize this is not the chair you're used to. And you can develop all kinds of back issues and soreness and tension and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So look, you want to take care of your back. You want to take care of your whole body, particularly if your job is going to require you to be sitting for a long stretch. That's why you want the X chair. It is a completely worthwhile investment, taking care of yourself, making work easier. And just knowing that at any given moment, I could just say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to reach down to these buttons in the back. I'm going to press the little massage option. Feel a little cool. I want to warm it up back there. I can press that button. Feeling a little warm. I want to cool it down back there. I can press that button. It is worth it. It makes work so much easier. And I wish I, I wish everybody in the world had one of these chairs. Try X chair for yourself, risk free for thirty days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. Go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X chair. M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. X-ChairMartini.com. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini here. And uh, I, I still feel like there, there has to be at least a bad component here because the Democrats are probably going to come to some sort of uh, solution here, which is going to be bad news ultimately. But right now, watching the moderates, what few remain in Congress, uh, fight with the progressive wing of the party is absolutely delicious. And it's all coming to a head here. We're nearly at the end of the fiscal year. We've got uh, the Democrats scrambling uh, to, to raise the debt ceiling and to fund the government. And what you really have here is the is the two factions of the party battling over whether to do the infrastructure bill first or to do the, the massively bloated three and a half trillion dollar bill, which is really five trillion, uh, to do that first. The progressives insist on doing the Democratic wish list, $3.5 trillion bill first. The moderates insist on getting the infrastructure bill passed. That's already passed the Senate. And uh, and so we're at loggerheads here. Kirsten Cinema insists that she's not budging on anything. She doesn't like the $3.5 trillion price tag anyway, but she insists that the House pass the infrastructure bill first. The progressives say, no, 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 we got to pass the uh, reconciliation bill first with all of our wish lists and get that done. Then we'll do infrastructure. And basically because of the thin margins on both sides of Capitol Hill, nothing right now uh, looks like it's going to get done super soon. 
my boss, Rich Lowry, had a very sharp observation on this about why uh, you might feel like the coverage of these endless negotiations on Capitol Hill feel excessive and why it feels like everybody's trying to read the tea leaves and every stray comment from Manchin or Cinema or PayPal or, or uh, Pelosi always seemed, Schumer, you know, everybody goes into a tizzy every time they offer some remark that seems to be hinting one way or the other. Rich observed that the things you see right before a deal completely collapses and the majority party has this enormously humiliating and embarrassing defeat and the sort of things you see right before they actually get a bill passed and they actually have this major legislative accomplishment are the exact same things. (laughs) You always have the same last minute uh, uh, holdouts and demands and posturing and one of two things happen. Either you get 218 people together in the House or I guess at this point with uh, three vacancies, I guess they only need 217. Uh, either you get 50 plus one in the Senate uh, and then you got you got your deal or you don't. And if you don't, it really will be a um, utterly humiliating, not just a humiliating, I think, a, you know, people are people are generally saying a, a presidency defining defeat for Biden in part because they're, they're, look, they've spent almost the entire year. Uh, this was the big thing that they took on after the COVID relief bill, which I think lulled a lot of Democrats into a sense of how easy this was going to be. And I think at the heart of this real despair, you know, yes, there's a, you know, oh, you could say Manchin's being different. Look, the first problem is that the Democrats only have 50 votes in the Senate, which means any senator can say, I want this or I'm not voting with you. And that's that's the reality. That's that's one of those things where you've now given veto power to every last one of them. Cinema and Manchin, by the way, are getting a lot of grief. They're being the lightning rods. But there are the Maggie Hassans, there are the Kellys out there who actually aren't that far away from their perspective and who would like to see a much lower total uh, uh, price tag on the bill. The second thing is, um, if you look at the Democratic Party, on paper, 2020 was a great year for them. Uh, look, they got the House, they got the Senate, and they got the presidency. But the only thing that really united all Democrats in 2020 was the ardent belief that Donald Trump should no longer be president. After that, there was some space among them. There, there, what, what unites a Joe Manchin, obviously, is extremely different from an AOC. Um, and some of it's, it's not just on, on, you know, how big bills should be or how much spending should be. It's also like, what are your priorities? What is your, you know, like the, the progressive left really wanted to transform America. They didn't really want just another big spending bill. They did not want the, you know, Obama stimulus 2.0 mansion and cinema. They're not conservatives. They're fine with additional spending, but they generally, they do hear the concerns about inflation. They do hear the concerns about, huh, what happens if we dump too much money into the economy and there just isn't enough goods and all of a sudden this ends up, you know, exacerbating an inflation problem that people are, are you know, starting to really notice these days. So I, here's the good news of this good Bartini. I think the odds of this crashing is a, uh, is, is pretty good right now. There's just a lot of in the end, they've been doing this for eight months. But they never really got around the fundamental question. What is it you actually want to do? What is the one thing you can get 218 or 217 House Democrats to agree on, all 50 House Democrats to agree on, and the administration to agree on? No, oh, by the way, I think Biden and Pelosi both just want a deal. <laughs> they just want something. So I think it is likely, and I go, I can be completely wrong on this. I think at some point in the next couple of days, the effort fails. They don't have the votes. They have a lot of egg on their face. The bad news of this scenario for conservatives who don't like all the spending, who basically see this as the best case scenario, is that I think it would be such a humiliating defeat. It would be such a motivational catastrophe for their base. It would be such a color. It would be the uh, fine as a Jet fan. I'll make the comparison. You'll, you'll compete. It's the butt fumble of legislative efforts, right? Um, that they're going to end up feeling a need to say, "Okay, let's pass something." And I think what's very likely is not only would they get something like the bipartisan, the BIF, 
the bipartisan infrastructure framework, whatever it is, they probably would get something else. That would be much less than progressives wanted, but I think there'd just be such humiliation out of all this that they'd be desperate to save face and be able to say they did something. And in a very strange way, I think that might unite Democrats in a way that this current state does not. Very good point. Uh, My advice to House Republicans, if they do bring the infrastructure bill first, don't help. (laughs) No, what are you doing? You know, opponent is self-destructing. Just stand there. Don't do anything. (laughs) The Senate Republicans didn't get that memo, apparently. But uh, yeah, if they don't have the uh, votes to do it on their own, don't allow this this back and forth uh, process to keep going. Uh, Pramila Jayapal, you mentioned her from Washington. She's head of the House Progressive Caucus. Uh, She tweeted last night, it's not the infrastructure bill, then maybe the Build Back Better package down the road. That wasn't the deal. Progressives won't back down. Cue the Tom Petty music. And... um, you know, Jim, my advice would be the same to her and Kirsten Cinema. Don't you give in. You stand your ground. I want to see that. <laughs> this principle. is not a time to compromise. Yes. But no, genuinely, like, though, like, I, you know, the, the progressive fears are legitimate that if you are mentioned or cinema or even, you know, the Kellys or uh, any of those and you pass the bipartisan infrastructure framework. Good. The president gets a big bipartisan win. He gets to demonstrate, you know, and it's and it's one point two trillion it's probably bigger than you and I would want, but it's not, you know, uh, compared to the 6.5 trillion or 3.5 trillion numbers being thrown around. It's not that bad. Um, and it's the sort of thing where like, you know, maybe the, not just, you know, Manchin and Cinema, maybe Kelly, maybe Hassan, maybe a bunch of Senate Democrats, a tester up in London. Maybe they're like, eh, that's okay. That's good. Let's wait until next year. Inflation's looking bad. Let's, let's make sure, you know, like there's no incentive to then go take the hard vote. There's some people who say, oh, no, you got to take the easy vote first. That builds momentum, and then you do the hard one. And the progress, House Progressive has a really reasonable point. Once we've done the easy thing, it's much easier for people to jump off the wagon and say, no, no, I'm not going to do the hard thing. Wow. Wow. A lot to uh, unfold here in the coming days. Uh, let's hope it uh, turns out as well as possible uh, for conservatives. But we need Democrats to make that happen. But in the meantime, let's talk about the wonderful products over at My Pillow. We've spent a lot of time talking about the pillows themselves, the sheets, the towels, so much more. But don't forget about My Slippers from My Pillow. Yes, they took two years to develop to ensure they're the highest in quality and comfort. And I can attest, they are of the highest in quality and comfort. I'm not a slippers guy, but I love my slippers. And right now, with our promo code Martini at MyPillow.com, you can get your own set of my slippers for 50% off. My slippers are durable, and you can wear them all day, indoors, outdoors, wherever you like. They're made from beautiful leather suede, have cozy faux fur linings, and an indoor-outdoor sole. They come in moccasin or slip-on style. They're available in a variety of colors, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. But you have to hear about the three-tier cushioning system. The first layer is the MyPillow patent fill. They took the MyPillow patented foam that you know and love and created a solid layer to create incredible comfort. The second layer is the Comfort Memory Foam, which provides that micro comfort and support so you can wear these slippers all day. And the third layer is the Patented Impact Gel, which is made from U.S. soybeans. And it's revolutionary in absorbing impact and relieving pressure. For a limited time, you can get the My Slippers 50% off. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener's square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. Now, while you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets. But you can only save that 50% on the new My Slippers with our promo code MARTINI. Call 800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. 
All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini. And for that, we head back to the White House and Press Secretary Jen Psaki. She's been spending a lot of time with us here on the Three Martini Lunch, but she's, trust me, earned every single minute of it. Uh, This was uh, Monday. She was addressing a question from uh, the press corps about a comment that President Biden made on Friday when he was meeting in the Oval Office with the Prime Minister of India, where he uh, said in an offhand comment that the Indian press corps was much better behaved than the U.S. press corps. And so Jen Psaki's explanation for that is, you know, you guys keep bringing up stuff he doesn't want to talk about. And I think what he said is that they're not always on point. Now, I know that isn't uh, something that anyone wants to hear uh, in here. um, But what I think he was conveying is, you know, today he might want to talk about COVID vaccine. Some of the questions were about that. He might want to talk about um, and, and some of the questions are not always about the topic he's talking about in that day. So, Jim, imagine that. I mean, we just had four years of uh, cable news chirons of Trump to talk about blank, comma, amid dot, 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 which is what the media wanted to talk about. So the idea that Biden might get a, a usually not even a hostile question about a topic he'd rather not discuss. Uh, that's not usually how this works. No. So here's the thing. I think the more it's a lame excuse from Jen Psaki, but we wouldn't really expect anything different. Uh, but I think the, the more interesting thing. So if you read Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes, which is about the 1988 presidential campaign, Biden is one of the eight uh, presidential candidates that he profiles, including uh, you know, Bob Dole, the eventual winner, George H.W. Bush, Michael Dukakis. Um, and there's this insecurity that comes through about Joe Biden, um, the sense that he, you know, let's face it, most Americans do not spend a lot of time thinking about the state of Delaware unless they're driving through it. Uh, being one of the, you know, uh, biggest fish in the Sea of Delaware is not really going to turn people's heads. And so you can kind of see this insecurity that comes out in Biden. And sometimes very explicitly with the, with the press in that race, like really vehement one where he says, I bet I have a higher IQ than you do. And all of the times Biden has boasted about things, about being at the top of his class and doubled, you know, all, all the number of times Biden has exaggerated his accomplishments. It kind of comes from this elemental level of discomfort of who he is and his fear that people are laughing at him or people don't take him seriously. And I, you know, for as much as you might say, oh, he shouldn't feel that way. It was, I believe, Barack Obama who was listening to a long speech from Biden and passed a note to an aide saying, please shoot me now. Um, Don't shoot either Barack Obama or Joe Biden, by the way. But like, you know, the idea that even Joe Biden's colleagues who worked with him found him kind of insufferable and a loud mouth and a blowhard and, and kind of, you know, uh, a somewhat annoying persona and nowhere near as big a deal as he is in his own mind. I think this comes through pretty regularly. I think there's this prickliness to, to Biden. I think that uh, a lot of what we saw on the campaign trail of 2020 was this sense of projection on the part of the media that, yes, Joe Biden had been this, you know, malarkey, you know, the wacky neighbor of the Obama administration. Uh, but that now he'd kind of grown into the role. He turned into the elder statesman of the Democratic Party. And I think, Greg, uh, now, you know, close to, you know, nine months approaching a year of his presidency, in terms of being an elder statesman, Greg, I think we can say he's got the first part down. <laughs> the statesman part, that's a little bit tougher. And in the end, he's the same guy, that same insecurity, that same guy who bristles at being criticized and bristles at uh, accusations he's not doing a good job and stuff like that. And sometimes it just comes out as a real, you know, defensive outburst, like that was four or five days ago, or, you know, come on, man, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, he's, 
Uh, somebody once said there are two types of people who run for president, people who want to be somebody and people who want to do something. I think we're much better with presidents who want to do something. Right? That's, that's what the job is. If you want to be somebody, if you have some sort of insecurity, if you have some sort of like need, well, then that's going to lead your presidency in all kinds of bad directions. And I kind of feel like this is what we're seeing with Biden is that he really wants to be the, the grand leader and all that kind of stuff. But you can see this in the, you know, what we were talking about our last martini of the negotiations on Capitol Hill. Biden's not telling the progressives you gotta have to take half a loaf. Sorry, welcome to, to governing. This is how it works. And he's not saying to Cinema and Mansion, you gotta get on board with it. You know, he's he just wants everybody to get along, and that's generally an amiable or, or good approach. But it also means it's not really leading. It's not saying this is what we have to do. And I think it's gonna run. He's gonna run into trouble with that. And oh, by the way, if you don't like being criticized, don't run for president of the United States. Could you only bring up the topics that make me look good, please? Which yeah, right? I mean, you know, what, what, what do you think they're gonna talk about? Anyway, Jim, on that note, quite a day. Let's do it again tomorrow. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.